Please do turn me to Paul. Turn with me to Paul's letter to the Colossians, and chapter one. I'd like to read two verses. Paul's letter to the Colossians and chapter one. We started this series last week. This was written in AD 61, 62, 63, somewhere around that time. Paul is in prison and he's writing to this young church. And I read here in verse 5, Whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you, as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit. So my subject this morning is gospel, truth, and power. It appears that Paul never visited this church. Paul, the Apostle Paul, the one who God used to plant, to inspire, to lead, to encourage, to teach so many of the churches in Asia and in Greece, and yet he never visited, it seems, the church at Colossae. And yet this church is formed alongside two other churches at Laodicea and Hierapolis. They formed a sort of triangle, a curve, three little towns and cities in the Lycos Valley. And yet Paul has not visited. The closest it seems he came was a hundred miles away, west in Ephesus, and yet the church has grown. Epaphras, its pastor, has taken a report and he's told Paul of the prospects and the fortunes of this church, how it's doing, how it's succeeding. And yet he comes with a report and he says, there's some problems. There's the good, the bad. And Paul is very interested. He's going to warn of the dangers. He's going to warn of the false solutions, man-made solutions. And then he's going to lift up Christ as all-sufficient. Christ who is preeminent. He's above all. And he's going to direct them and point them to him. And so we've introduced, he's given his greetings. He's spoken of the saints, the Christians. He's spoken of their faith, living and saving faith. And how do we know that's real? Well, he's spoken of the fruit of all the believers at Colossae. We see the evidence of real, saving faith. Because true Christians, they don't live on their own. They're not isolated. They don't sit in monasteries. They go out into the world. And they have a love particularly for other believers. They do all they can. They say every words they can of encouragement. And it says in verse 4, the love which you have 
to all the saints, the people at Colossae, they're in a little church, we know five of the names at least, of the people who are members there, but their business, their purpose, their motive, is to see the church go into all the world. They're particularly interested in those two other churches nearby, and their lives are characterized by the relationships that they have with other believers. Faith, charity starts at home, we say. And that's true. What can I do in my home with my family and then my neighbors and all the saints in all the world? And because they have saving faith and they have a living faith shown by the love that they have, thirdly, the third characteristic is they have a living hope laid up for them in heaven. Well, we got as far as verse 5a, but we come to verse 5b. There is a question begged. This church, the church at Colossae, how did it get there? How has it grown and developed? That's an interesting question. It's not a theoretical question. It's a very real one. How does any church become a church? How does it get formed? What's the foundations of that church? It's a good question. It's an even better question because the Lycos Valley was very fertile. It had fields and it had olive groves and it had many crops and apparently it was a beautiful place you can go there some people here have been to that location and they've seen it with their own eyes the three towns but whilst it was physically fertile and it's a place of great beauty and agricultural promise spiritually this was not a promising location. The gospel was sent to a pagan place, a place, as we read in Romans 1, where the people worshipped the creature more than the creator, and they had turned God, who cannot be seen, cannot be described, cannot be contained, into statues of birds and four-footed beasts. It was pagan. There was idol worship there, but can I say even worse? There was what we might call debauchery. The adults know what that word means. Romans 1 described it. Things that should not be. The human body was given and made to be productive, to be reproductive, to be useful, to serve God, to serve each other. It's a thing of beauty. God made it and designed it. But here in Colossae, 
There was open license. Anything goes. You can see that in the archaeology. You can see it in the history. And it's recorded here in Colossians. This was a debauched, depraved society. It was also a comfortable place. Known for its health and prosperity. They had what they needed. They had comforts. They had good food to eat. It was a place of luxury and comfort. And there comes the gospel. What hope has the gospel got? Oh, they'll never receive it there. It's a comfortable place. Do you know in this country sometimes we speak, maybe rightly, maybe wrongly, oh, we want to plant a church. We want to resuscitate a church. There is an organization that some of us are interested in and support, and we're thinking these buildings that are becoming empty, but we still own them in the trusts that have been formed. Which one should we seek to resuscitate? Oh, that place, that town, that's a middle-class town. The gospel won't really thrive there. Well, maybe that's true, humanly. But Colossae, was that a promising place for the gospel to go to? Do you know, this is a profound problem for the historians. They really can't understand why at the middle of the second century after Christ, the historians, secular historians, tell us there was over 500,000 Christians. Half a million? That's astonishing. Twelve men. Uneducated, mostly. People who are rough characters. They didn't go to university except to the best university under the feet of the Savior for three years. And from these twelve feeble, fickle, doubting men, half a million. This is what Justin Martyr says. He's a historian. He's writing in the middle of the second century. And this is what he says. A secular Unbelieving historian, he says, there is no people, Greek, non-Jew, or barbarian, or of any other race, whether they dwell in tents or wander about in covered wagons, among whom prayers and thanksgivings are not being offered in the name of the crucified Christ, the Lord Jesus, to the Father and the Creator of all things. How do you explain how the gospel has gone from such small beginnings, 12 men and a few women? Now it's half a million. And it's gone far and wide, and the persecution, which was trying to stamp out the gospel, destroy it, 
Put them in prison. Hang them. Burn them. Get rid of them. And that was how the gospel spread. Because God had intended that the believers would multiply and they would be dispersed and they would go to places like Colossae, oh Colossae, on a west-east route, Ephesus, the three towns, the gospel goes, Epaphras probably is the one that takes it there, and there it begins to grow and to flourish in a hostile Roman and Greek world. And now it comes. Well, the answers are given in these verses, 5b and 6 and 7 and 8. So three headings this morning. Firstly, just a message. Secondly, but the gospel of truth. And thirdly, the gospel of power. Just a message, the gospel of truth, and the gospel of power. So the first point, five, verse five. We've heard of their saving faith, their love, their hope. Their hope which is in heaven. And then it says, whereof. How did it come to pass? How was it that these believers had come to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Whereof? Well, I'm going to give you the explanation, says Paul. This is going to be preparatory to the problems and the dangers that he will deal with in the letter. But first of all, he needs to establish this principle. The principle is the way that you were saved and came to faith is the way that you should go on in life. Well, how was that? Whereof, because of this, once, when you heard before, what did they hear? They just heard a message. A simple message, but yet a profound message. One of the greatest men of all, Paul, a man learned in letters, taught and steeped in the Old Testament, and yet he didn't understand. And he had to come to an end of himself and a message had to come to him that he was to stop, stop his wild career, as we call it. Stop his lifelong antagonism to the gospel. And so he speaks in verse 5 and he says, you too heard a message, a message unlike any other message. Because this message comes from heaven. Quite simply, if, just imagine, just imagine there was a few men and they were thinking, let's go and spread a rumor. Let's go and spread a rumor about a man 
Let's make up a few things to make it dramatic. Let's pretend that he did miracles and that he was a very good teacher. Maybe we can fool a few people. Maybe some people will give us lots of money for this mission. And, do you know, I'm not just imagining it. This actually happens again and again and again. It happened in the first century. And it happens now. But how can you explain how half a million people are willing to lay down their lives to be put in prison, to become martyrs, unless the message that they have in their hands and their hearts is a message that's not like any other message. It's not just a message. These are the words of life. Whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. What they heard in Colossae was not like any other message. And they heard lots of messages. There were philosophies. There was cults and sects that went across the ancient world. But this message was not like any other message. It was unique. It was authentic. It spoke about life as it really is. It made the people think. Do you know this message has a wonderful way? Try and understand this. When it comes to us, it's tailored to fit. You don't go into a shop and expect to wear every piece of clothing and garment in that, sh in that shop. It has to be fitted. And this one message that comes in one way, it's, it fits all people. But in another way, somehow, it's tailored for my very need. It knows what my circumstances are. It knows my past. It knows my future. And this message, it comes to me. And it speaks just to my situation. Has that ever happened to you before? It's happened to me. You're in some crisis. You're in some problem. I don't know which way to turn. Left, right, up, down. And a message comes from the Bible. And the Holy Spirit speaks just to my situation, to my need, a message, a promise, a word. How can I explain it? I've read the Bible, somebody said this morning in the adult Bible study. They've read a book of the Bible and one phrase, it jumped off the page. That all the Old Testament scriptures had been written by one shepherd, even the Lord God, even the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this is a living message. It's a dynamic message. It's a one-size-fits-all, and it's a tailored message there and at the same time. How extraordinary, because this was the message that came to Colossae, just a message. 
but a profound message. It speaks about life and death. It speaks about my real need to be right with God. It's a message with profound propositions. There's one God. And we're all sinners before God. It's a message that pleads tenderly, encourages us to change our ways. It's a message speaking of reconciliation. How much we need that. It's a glorious message. When you hear it, it has the ring of truth. And I know it's not been written by men and women, but by the Holy Spirit. It's a message that sometimes is medicine, sometimes it's honey, sometimes it's a hammer, sometimes it's a sword to divide, and sometimes it's light to shine into the darkest parts of our heart. To show us our greatest need. So that's our first point. It's just a message. But it's not just a message. We read here that it's the word of truth. That's significant. A gospel of truth. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. All Scripture, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration, breathed out of God, and it's profitable for every single part of our life. We don't put one part of the Bible above another. We don't take that bit and say, I like that bit and I don't like that. We don't say, Genesis, that's just a story. All scripture. This is the word of truth. Well, there's two words for truth here in this verse. It says, verse 5, verse 5 and 6, whereof before ye heard in the word of truth of the gospel. Then in verse 6 it says, and knew the grace of God in truth. So two words for truth, the word is the same, aletheia, it has a slightly different meaning in the two words, and that's our two further points. Just a message, and then secondly, the gospel of truth. This is referring to the character of this message that came to Colossae. The second reference, we'll come to that, applies to how it's taken in, how it's received. It says, in truth, in sincerity. Well, let's just think shortly of these two uses of the word truth, because this is important. It says, the truth of the gospel. This is a pure message. This is a message where everything within it is consistent. When I read the word of God, what it tells me in one book 
confirms what it says in another book. If I go to a verse, I don't understand it. I compare scripture with scripture, spiritual with spiritual. Everything about the word of God is reconfirming of its truth. It's the message of truth. It's consistent. But you know it's the truth as well because it's comprehensive. We don't need to add to it because nothing needs to be added. Sometimes people tell me, oh, I'm very interested in this particular thing and I've spent the last couple of months wandering, pontificating about this question, that question. Friends, get back to the Word of God. Don't trouble yourself overly much with things that are peripheral. If the Word of God doesn't deal with it, we don't really need to know it. Yes, we need to understand science and we need to understand nutrition and all sorts of things, but preoccupy yourselves with the Word of God. It is comprehensive. It's a pure Word. Everything is truth and it's consistent. But secondly, verse 6, when the Word of truth, this message, which we've thought about its character, when it came to them, why did it flourish? This is important. This is relevant for everybody listening to me here this morning. The reason it flourished, because it was a message from heaven, it was a message that was the truth and is the truth, it's the gospel of truth, but there was something that they did. It says the grace of God in truth. You can also translate the word aletheia in the original as sincerely. You can listen to me. Some of you do. Some of you don't. You can listen half-hearted. You might be cared and worried about many things. That's fine. But when they heard this message, they heard it in truth. They gave their ears, their eyes, their hearts. They stood up, they sat up. They gave it attention. And one of the reasons the word of God flourished in Colossae was because they knew the grace of God in truth. They gave it their best attention. They turned over the soil of their hearts so that the seed would be received. They took it in, they turned it over, they prepared it, they warmed the ground, they watered it, and the seed flourished. Why doesn't it do that in some of your hearts? Why does the seed lie long on the ground? Well, there's many answers to that question. Why is it that some of you have been here for many, many years 
And yet you've not yet spoken and given evidence that the seed has dwelt in your heart and the roots have gone into your life and the fruits are there. Well, there's many answers to that question. First of all, sin is serious. It gets hold of us and the biggest form of sin is unbelief. Unbelief says, no, I won't have that message. I won't let it grow. I'll have a hard heart. I'll bounce it off. Secondly, we can be so stubborn, holding on to our darling sins. And really we know deep down it's either Christ or that sin. It's either that habit or it's Christ. And Christ will not have anyone else within a heart. It's Christ, it's Christ alone, and it's no one else. What is it in your heart that wants to have a home instead of Christ? Is it some habit, some pastime, some preoccupation? Or have you made, as it says in that hymn that we sing at Christmas, there's no heart, there's no room in my heart for Christ. And that's why the gospel comes, it comes in a message, and it needs to be mixed with faith, and it needs to have no competition, so that the seed goes into the heart. But there's a third reason, and this is the biggest reason of all. The seed didn't settle in your heart because the Holy Spirit has not yet broken up the stubborn, hard heart. And somehow, for some reason, you hold back. Friends, go and cry and plead that the Holy Spirit will do the work that he only can do and will cause you to drop everything else, to lay hold on eternal life, to exercise the muscles of faith and to speak of Christ and of no other. That was the Colossian problem. When they came to faith, they believed in Christ. But they were going away. But some of you have never come to saving faith because you've never laid hold on eternal life. Well, thirdly, to close very briefly, the message was just a message, but it wasn't just a message. It was the message of truth. It was of Christ. And it was heard sincerely, thirdly. It was a message of power. Power. The seven explanations for why it's powerful, they're all here. I won't prove them to you. It's a message of power because it was universal. It went into all the world. One message, he says, which is come unto you as it is in all the world. From Jerusalem, 12 men, 
gone into all the world. Why? Because you couldn't contain it. Because it was good news. One message taken into all the world. Secondly, it was a gospel of power because it was fruitful. It brings forth fruit. Do you know that's why it flourished? Because the lives of these men and women were transformed. And the people saw this gospel is authentic. This truth that has power because it changes the life. Sins disappear. Habits are dropped. Addictions are broken. Twisted lives are straightened. Debauchery is no more. This is a fruitful gospel and that's why it's powerful. And it can be sometimes a gospel of power because the fruit is immediate. It says as it doth also in you since the day you heard it. Do you know that sometimes happens? One message, one tract, one piece of personal witness. Since that day I first believed. It can be immediate for some of us. It wasn't for me. It took time. It took several months. And that doesn't mean it's any less powerful. But for some people here, you know the day, you know the hour, you know the message, you know the text. And that's the power. Fourthly, it's a gospel of power because it's real. They knew. Verse 6. They knew. They didn't feel. It wasn't just a feeling, a sentiment, something that comes and goes. They knew the grace of God in truth. That's why it was powerful. Universal, fruitful, immediate, and real. Unmistakable. You say to somebody, how do you know you're a Christian? Because I know that my Redeemer lives. Because I know the grace of God. Because I know the hour I first believed. It's not arrogant to say that. You're not super spiritual. This is biblical language. They knew the grace of God in truth. Then fifthly, we can say it was powerful because it was gracious. They knew the grace of God. This isn't a gospel where you have to earn, you have to work, you have to do, you have to say. This is about what Christ has done for me. He's done everything. Nothing needs to be added. I can't add. That was the problem at Colossians. They were trying to add, take away from, undermine. We can't do it. We shouldn't do it. It's the grace of God in truth. Whose truth? Christ is truth. Sixthly, this is a powerful gospel because it's radical. 
It turned the world upside down. They went into the cities and they were put in prison. Why? Because they turned the world upside down. They turned them from idols. They turned them from wicked things to a life that was worth living. A a life that transforms. And finally, seventhly, this was a gospel of power because it doesn't stop there. Verse 7, As ye also learned of Epaphras. You learned and you carried on learning. You don't suddenly become holy. When you become a Christian, look at our lives as a church. Sure, we can all say this. We're learning. We're deepening. We're growing. I hope we're becoming cleaner. We're loving Christ more. We're loving each other more. This is ongoing and that power goes on and on. We learned and we're still learning. That's what it means. Of Epaphras, their dear pastor, their dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ. All that they need and all that we need. This is a gospel of truth and power. That's why that church was formed and grew, and that's why this church was formed, and it's still growing. May the Lord help us in these things. Let's sing our closing hymn, a hymn which lifts up the glorious gospel of our God, which we see in Christ Jesus. Number 100.